this morning, please turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Christmas Day means that God has not forsaken us. He's come and sought us out to save us. In Isaiah 62, verses 11 and 12, the prophet speaks, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. God did all of this to justify us by His grace, to give us the sure and steadfast hope of eternal life and to make us the heirs of His promise. In Jesus Christ, conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, the grace of Almighty God has appeared in this world as a person. And this morning we lift Him up together in the Gospel, a signal over all the peoples in Isaiah 62.10, a signal of where to look to see and to find God's grace and forgiveness and salvation that all might rejoice at His coming. In Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, He tells us that the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of David, was a sign that He was like this to the shepherds, that God had appeared to save us, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This morning I pray that we leave this place like the shepherds left the manger in Luke 2, 19 and 20, glorifying, glorifying and praising God and telling everyone what we have heard and seen. The truth of Jesus was the, or the birth of Jesus was the appearance of God's grace and kindness to save us, not by our own works, but by His goodness and His mercy. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, we are thankful This morning, we thank you for the time of worship that we've had. We thank you for the music. We thank you for the skills and the talents you have given your people that we might make music to you, for you, to glorify you together. And Father, I pray this morning that you would help me speak clearly. That Father, this message, this text would have meaning for each and every one of us. And I pray that you would watch over all who hear and how they hear. That we would be careful to listen to your word as you have given it. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Before I read here, back in chapter 2, verse 11 of this letter, Paul had told Titus that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But the appearance of God's grace wasn't really the revelation of grace as a doctrine per se or an abstract concept um, given to the world of philosophy or religion. It was the appearance of a person named Jesus Christ that began in a manger and ended in His ascension back to the place from where He was sent with the Father after His ministry, His life, His death, and His resurrection. And Paul reminds Titus that the appearance of Jesus was the revelation of God's purpose to bring salvation to all people, to every nation. And so we pick up the passage this morning as Paul begins to tell Titus the exhortations and teaching he is to give to the people on the island of Crete. A perfect example 
of God's grace to bring salvation to all nations is that Paul is writing to a pastor on the island of Crete to proclaim the gospel and how to raise up a church. And so uh, he does so by reminding Titus of what the appearance of God's grace means for the lives of those people there. Let me pick it up in chapter 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Beloved, these are still good tidings of great joy for you and I and for everyone this morning that God talks to us like this, that these are the things He is saying in the person of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man, still and forever. Both natures existing in one person. God's grace and loving kindness are revealed. And this gracious God has done exactly what He promised to do when He had Joseph name this child Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Look back again at verse 3. He says, For we ourselves, just like all those people in Crete before those who had believed and heard the Gospel, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Paul is saying that about himself and about Titus, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul is not going to make the point now that now since we're Christians, we don't sin anymore. We don't struggle with our flesh. But he is saying that the record of sin we have is not what defines us anymore. We are not, believer, you are not, the sum total of the choices that you have made. If we were, we would remain under condemnation under a just and holy God forever, if that was the case. We are not saved because eventually our good is going to outweigh our bad or because eventually we'll somehow be able to make up for the wrong things we've done and because we've gotten our lives in order and we've made them acceptable to God we are and remain saved for one reason. It is because the grace of God appeared. Jesus came for us. He doesn't save us in verse 5 because of good works done by us. Not even good works done in righteousness after we're saved. That's not why He saves us. But according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly in verse 6, through Jesus Christ our Savior. We receive God who is three in one in Christ. So we're not saved by becoming savable people. That's nothing to write songs about. That's nothing to sing about. It's nothing to gather on a ridiculously cold Christmas morning about. 
Grace is something to sing about. Out of pure mercy from God, He sent the Holy Spirit who testifies to Christ in us. He's why we believe these things. He's why we're here praising to wash us, bring us to life, renew our spirits to worship God and this rich and lavish outpouring of His life-giving Spirit on us through the gospel we heard and believe is accomplished, all accomplished through Jesus Christ our Savior. If there is no Christmas to celebrate, there is no salvation to possess. If Jesus didn't come, we will always be some version of what we were in verse 3. So in verse 7, he tells us that salvation comes about by the appearance of Jesus, not our own works, so that. So here's God's purpose here in Titus. Being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, beneficiaries, recipients, not employees. We aren't God's employees. We aren't working for a paycheck in heaven. We are Heirs of the hope of all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. The hope of eternal life. We are always beneficiaries of grace. We are never benefactors. We are in God's will, so to speak, like a document. And have done nothing to have our name written there. We stand this morning as recipients of God's grace and glory, not as earners, but as heirs of a hope that will not disappoint us, that will never make us ashamed for having had it. In other words, we have to expend zero energy in our lives. Hear me now. Because God justifies us by His grace, that Paul says in Romans is a gift, and because we are heirs now, in these lives, this morning, of eternal life. What he is driving at here is that since those things are true, since God's grace has appeared, you and I have to expend zero energy in this life trying to earn our salvation. We have that as an inheritance already bought and paid for by Christ himself. So... Look at verse 8 now. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, the grace of God appearing, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In other words, since you and I are truly free, we may now use all our energy all our effort to love and to serve our neighbors as ourselves. Christians, never forget what Titus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 tell us. It is by the constant affirmation of the fact, the constant proclamation, the insistence on the fact that God has justified us in Jesus by grace through faith and not by works, that, in verse 8, we might become a people who are careful to maintain good works. So whether or not Christians are zealous for good works in the right way and for the right motivation and with the proper understanding depends 100% on how often the gospel of grace is being insisted on and affirmed in our hearing. 
I believe this with all my heart. The more deeply we hear and consistently and constantly we hear and are reminded of the grace of God, Christ is transforming us. We are beholding Him, His face in the gospel where God's glory has been revealed. And that, that message is transformative. Notice what He says I want you to insist on what I've just told you about being justified by grace and not by works. That will create a people zealous for good works. And what have we normally done? What have we normally believed? That in order to get people to work, you have to insist on works and on effort. But it doesn't work. It doesn't create the kind of people God wants to create. Grace creates the kind of people God wants to create. And here's the thing. The grace of God has appeared. We have Jesus to look at. He changes us. He makes us people that do good works, not out of fear, but out of faith. Not out of bondage, but out of freedom. You are free to go and serve and love and lose and fail and not succeed as the world sees it because you are an heir of eternal life. You are free. It is finished. Serve and love other people now. You need to expend zero energy to preserve yourself. When Paul says those crazy things that he says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, that's because of grace. Like Paul doesn't naturally possess the desire to depart and be with Christ. He knows that the life he's living is going to speed up his date with eternal life. And he loses his life eventually for the gospel. But he gained. He gained. For me to live is not this attempt to become something God is proud of. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is grace. Therefore, to die is gain. So Paul tells Titus, he's always teaching the same thing. He just can say it in so many different ways than I can. Insist on teaching justification by grace. That needs to be the steady diet of what the people in Crete hear. Why? Because God wants to serve people through His people, through the church on the earth. And this is what will do it. This is what will do it. Through us, through His church, the appearance of God's grace at Christmas still extends to the whole world. Back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 13, we find that it is this grace that trains us to live godly lives. How does grace train us to live godly lives? What, what, what in grace is like a, are there lessons about how to live life? That's not what Christianity is. That's not what he's saying. Grace trains us to live godly lives because the more we hear it and understand it, the freer we are, the stronger our faith then we want to serve God, then we want to serve and love our neighbors, even giving ourselves away for them, which is precisely what Christ did. It's grace that will make the church like Jesus. Just grace. Just grace. The law doesn't train us how to be righteous. That's not its function. That The law has not been laid down in that way for the just. Believer, you are just. So the law doesn't teach us to live godly lives. Grace trains us to lead godly lives. So what ought to, we, we are righteous in Christ. We are perfected in Christ. What ought to motivate Christians then is not so much a sense of responsibility, although that's absolutely correct, but of a, a sense of gratitude and joy 
and hope and faith. I can't lose, therefore I can give you everything. What Jesus has done for us by coming to us and doing all the work necessary to secure our salvation and guarantee our hope of eternal life, that creates a new person that lives inside this old person that you see in front of you, that sees the world as Jesus did. That's the goal of grace here, to create people that see the world like Jesus saw the world, to see people like Jesus saw people. See, when we... We are never more Christ-like than when we are forgiving people. Right? We're never more Christ-like than when we are giving ourselves away for the sake of others, when we are serving others rather than ourselves. He doesn't, Jesus didn't see the world. Now, Jesus knew who his enemies were, but one of the most I wanted to say there that, that Jesus doesn't, uh, doesn't see people as enemies to destroy. Like that's not, the, that's not the reason that He came the first time. To destroy everybody. He came in mercy. He appeared in grace. But one of the most beautiful moments in the Gospels is when Jesus, you find out in Luke 15, when He tells the story of the prodigal son, is that Jesus has been so hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders who are so awful to him and rude to him and will conspire with Rome and with the devil to murder him, and yet he is entreating them to come into the party of the redeemed. Right? Even his enemies, he's saying, why are you so angry Right to that older brother? right? That's who they are in that story. Why are you out here mad that other people that, that I'm giving grace away... what? You're, you've always been my son. You've always been what you are by grace. Why don't you come in and enjoy this? Don't stay outside. Don't be mad and bitter because this grace is more bountiful than you could have imagined. You need that too. And you have it in me, so come in. Jesus entreats his enemies with sincerity. Jesus has redeemed us from who we were before and what we did, purifying us to make us zealous for good works back in 2.14, eager to do them. Again, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. The people devoted to good works here in 3.8, the things that are excellent and profitable for people, Christians have that for the world. But only if we go to them as people who know they are free and they aren't working. Right? They're not doing this duty to get paid, even though it is our duty to do these things. But for completely different reasons are we a slave to Christ than we were a slave to ourselves and to the devil. We aren't giving presents throughout our lives of work to God, but to our neighbors because God gave us Jesus. That's what He wants the world to see in His church. Oh, you you're happy because you have hope, because you're free. Peter would say, be ready at all times to give a defense for the hope that is within you. The hope that is within me. How are they going to see that? They're going to see it when we give ourselves away. Right? The church is God's gift to the world because we continue to proclaim Christ, not because we are such a great thing to give to the world. 
But the gospel is. And what we're giving is the appearance of Christ over and over and over again. It really is Christmas every day for us. We used to live for ourselves, didn't we? We used to serve ourselves. We ought to be different now. We were foolish in verse 3, but now we've been given the mind of Christ. We've come to know the wisdom of God through His Holy Spirit. We used to be disobedient all the time, characterized by it, but now by the power of God's grace and our ever-deepening understanding of it, His Spirit is producing the fruit of obedience in us. That's what's happening whenever we do a good work, whenever coming out of us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the Spirit is producing it through us. We used to be led astray. We didn't know what we were living for or what truth really was, so we followed whoever sounded the most right to us, which normally aligns completely with what we want. We tend to follow the people and listen to the truth that affirms what we already believe about ourselves and about what we deserve and want and all these things. But now we know the way. Now we know the truth and the life. We used to be slaves to various passions and pleasures, he says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But that, that's what's out there, hate. Everything we see and some of the things that can turn a person's stomach, that's happening because nobody is happy in the core of who they are. They hate and they are hated. We know how to be set free from this. We know that this is not all there is. And we receive that because God's grace appeared. Let us be that in Christ to the world. Because for all we used to be, then the goodness and loving kindness of God's grace appeared to us personally, to each one of us who believe. Through the gospel, through the living word of Jesus Christ, God announced the arrival of His grace to us in His word. And now, now we've been set free from sin to be slaves of Christ rather than ourselves. And to be a slave of Christ is not to be filled with hate, but with love and with joy and with hope and with peace we're no longer slaves to our flesh or to fear or to death. We're not filled with malice and envy, but with the love of God. All because of this day that we call Christmas and what it means. All because of the appearance of God's grace. That one moment, that one appearing was a sign that God had invaded. Not to conquer by killing, but by dying so that others may live. That one appearing interrupted the entire world. Interrupted all history. That one appearing changed our destiny. In the first sermon the Apostle Peter ever preached, he recounted how Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecy that God would send a king to sit on David's throne and that all who believed by grace through faith on Him, would be saved. He said in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, this promise is for you. You were always meant to read that 
to hear this as something for you. It's not an abstract story about historical facts, and that's what they are. This is God's grace appearing to save you personally. The grace of God is still being poured out on us by His Spirit in the Gospel. That, that's, that's what it, when we're hearing the Gospel, God is pouring His grace on us over and over again so lavishly, just as He is right now, this very morning. You know how good it felt this morning to give things to the people you love. We all know that feeling. God says it is better to give than to receive. That's why grace appeared. Right? God knows that it's better to give away than it is to get. And since He knows who He is, He doesn't need us to make Him what He is. That's what He does to us so that we become like that. Since I know who I am, since I know I have eternal life, since I know I'm an heir, since I know I've been set free and forgiven and redeemed by God's grace, I am free to only give because I've been given, because we have been given so much. Every time we hear the good news and the proclamation of His birth, we're not just hearing a story. We are standing under the waterfall of God's goodness and loving kindness. Because when we had nothing to give, He gave us everything. This is Christ for us, for you. The appearance of God's grace. This is Christmas. Receive Him.